0: My name is Aaron Lasley. I've traveled many different roads in my life. I've been a law enforcement officer and first responder in the United States Coast Guard. I've worked in a couple of psychiatric hospitals, but now I'm a professional historian and podcaster. I've also had an interest in true crime for most of my life. In this podcast, I study some of the most notorious crimes through the lens of a historian and analyze what may have inspired criminals Investigators and even society during the commission of those crimes and investigations. Join me as we look into the history behind the crime. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the history behind the crime. I hope you all are staying cool. Uh, we've been fortunate for the most part up here in the Seattle area. Uh, temperatures have stayed, you know, in the 70s and 80s. And we've only gotten to the 90s, you know, just a couple of times in the past couple of weeks. And I'm very thankful um, because for most people, including myself, we don't have AC. And I hope that after saying all that, I just didn't like jinx us where we're now going to get like warmer temperatures. Gosh, I hope not. And wow, I can't believe I've sunk so low as to talk about the weather during an introduction. Maybe because I'm a little bit embarrassed uh, because it's been a while since I have put out a full episode. Here's the thing about that. I spent two weeks researching and writing a story about the Boston Marathon bombing. And suddenly I found myself going off on a tangent about Chechnya and I totally lost sight of Boston. I got stuck and I didn't know how to get back. So I decided to shelf that episode for now. And have moved on uh, with this episode. About 10 years ago, I was working in my hometown of Broken Arrow, Oklahoma. We had an office in a pretty rural area of town uh, with a golf course and a restaurant across the street. Overall, it was a quiet place to work and there was very little traffic. One day, Two of my coworkers went across the street to get something to eat while the rest of us took care of clients or worked quietly in our offices. It wasn't quiet for long. Maybe 10 minutes after my two coworkers left, police cars cut off the quiet highway, surrounded the restaurant across the street, and set up a command post in our office's tiny parking lot. At least 30 cops had their M15s pointed at the restaurant, and the SWAT van pulled up just moments later with more cops with better weaponry came pouring out of it. Apparently, two men and two women had carjacked someone at gunpoint and fled from Tulsa into rural Broken Arrow and foot bailed at the restaurant. You can imagine we were a bit freaked out because we had two of our co-workers in that restaurant but thankfully they called in to say they were fine and apparently the workers had locked the building and ordered everyone into the pantries where they could all be safe. I of course was riveted by the scene and I admit I made popcorn (laughs) and stupidly perched myself in front of the window to watch the drama. Don't ever do that. Our clients weren't as impressed as I was. One man was upset because he couldn't leave, and the police ordered him back into our office after a lengthy argument. You know, there's always one. While another client went off on a tangent about the police being, quote, overarmed. At the time, I just kept my mouth shut because, you know, I didn't want to piss off a client. But I could put myself in the officer's shoes. They didn't know what kind of firepower those four suspects had. When I was in the Coast Guard, we had both M16s and 12-gauge shotguns on board because you have to meet force with force. As law enforcement, you don't want to respond to a scene and find you're outgunned. The suspect has an AR-15 and all you have is your semi-automatic pistol and a taser. Welcome to America, where nearly everyone can buy a military-grade rifle and anyone with a brain and internet access can find out how to turn a semi-automatic into an automatic. Needless to say, my clients' remarks about the police being overarmed were both naive and tragically true. In American society today... Police cannot respond to certain calls without long guns because the American public has a fascination and access to high-capacity weapons. For the purpose of this podcast, I'll refer to all police semi-automatic rifles as long guns. Since 2019, there has been a 65% increase in gun sales in the United States. And in 2022, there were 647 mass shootings in the United States alone. Now, that's not to say that everyone with a gun is a bad guy, but police do not have the luxury of being able to read people's minds when responding to scenes. An argument I have heard a few times before is only SWAT, special weapons and tactics, should have long guns in certain cities that's a fair argument because some cities have dedicated SWAT teams who can respond quickly in other areas there are no SWAT teams or there are SWAT teams but they are made up of normal patrol officers or deputies and can take up to 30 minutes or more to assemble a lot can happen in 30 minutes as we've seen time and time again with school shootings synagogue shootings. Church shootings, nightclub shootings, concert shootings, parade shootings, party shootings, restaurant shootings, bank shootings, office shootings, hospital shootings, military base shootings. While there have been times in U.S. history when patrol officers did carry long guns, think Chicago cops during Prohibition, but we'll get to that in a later episode. For the most part, most patrol cruisers didn't come equipped with semi-automatic rifles. Shotguns sometimes, but not rifles. Not even in cities where one would expect. There simply wasn't a need because sidearms were normally more than enough force to respond to any crime. That all changed in Los Angeles in 1997. Side note. Before we begin, I realize what happened in Los Angeles was not the first holy shit moment police experienced that changed the nature of how police respond to violent or potentially violent crimes today. Throughout the country in the 1990s, there were several events that made the police realize that they had to change tactics and upgrade weapons to match force with what was out there on the streets. Los Angeles was the main turning point because not only was it a monumental event in US history, but also because news agencies were able to capture a lot of it on camera. The world watched, and police agencies all over the U.S. used the event as justification to arm up. It happened in Los Angeles. It could happen anywhere in the United States. For a few decades, Los Angeles was considered the bank robbery capital of the world, I got the following information from Peter Houlihan's article, The Rise and Fall of the Bank Robbery Capital of the World, from the website Crime Reads, which I am becoming obsessed with. Between the years 1985 and 1995, approximately 3,500 L.A. banks were robbed 17,106 times. Yeah. The worst year was 1992, when there were 2,641 bank heists. That's an average of one every 45 minutes. On one day alone, there were 28 bank robberies. L.A. was almost the perfect city for bank robberies because of its large population, which demanded thousands of banks, and the sheer number of freeways, which made for easy getaways. Rob a bank, jump onto a freeway, Ditch the car for a clean car, and you're good to go. The changing culture of living and shopping also helped increase the number of bank robberies. For decades, many banks and towns and cities were mostly located downtown, where most people did their shopping. That all started to change in the late 1960s and 70s, when strip malls, we all love a good strip mall, took the place of downtown department stores. Rather than driving 20 minutes to shop downtown, you could just mosey on down the street. Banks followed the money, obviously. By 1990, retail banking expanded into thousands of storefront branches, especially in L.A., where many of these banks were situated right next to, you guessed it, freeway ramps. Banks kept their headquarters in downtown downtown. But most of the business happened in shopping areas or across the street from neighborhoods. Heck, go into any Walmart today and you will find a bank of some sort there. Other than the posh areas in L.A., is there a street where there isn't a strip mall or retail center with a bank or a few banks just right next door? For the most part, bank robberies are nonviolent because the robber just wants the money and to get the hell out of Dodge. Many times a robber will simply walk right up to the teller, slip them a note that says something like, I have a gun, give me all your money, and hightail it out of there once they get what they want. Most bank policies, even back then, ordered bank employees just to hand over the cash and call the police. No fuss, no muss. There are times when bank heists go horribly wrong. On May 9th, 1980, Five heavily armed young men, led by an evangelical born-again Christian named George Wayne Smith, attempted a takeover robbery of the Security Pacific Bank in Riverside County town of Norco that turned into one of the most violent events in law enforcement history. Smith and his housemate, Chris Harvin, were preparing for a rapidly approaching apocalypse in which only the well-armed and well-funded would survive. Neither had any previous criminal record but they did have an elaborate plan that began with stealing a getaway van and kidnapping the driver. From there, just about everything went wrong. The diversion bomb they had placed under a gas main of a construction site about a mile away, well, fizzled out. Entering the bank in military fatigues and ski masks armed with assault rifles, they were spotted by a teller at another bank across the street who called the Riverside Sheriff's Department. A sheriff's deputy just happened to stop at a red light, staring directly at the bank when the dispatch came over the radio. Bad timing. What followed was a ferocious firefight on a crowded Friday afternoon in a major Southern California intersection. With their teenage getaway driver killed... The four remaining robbers carjacked a pickup truck and went on a 40-mile running gun battle through the streets of Norco, onto a busy freeway, and into the mountains above L.A., where they ambushed pursuing police and escaped into the rugged canyons. When it was all over, three were dead, almost 20 wounded, including seven police officers, with 33 law enforcement vehicles disabled or destroyed by gunfire and homemade fragmentation grenades. And all this included a destroyed sheriff's helicopter that went down over San Bernardino County. That was the start of LA's bank robbery marathon. And it ended almost the same way in 1997. The other thing L.A. is known for is bodybuilders. Go to any beach in the L.A. area and you'll see a few. Go to Venice Beach and you'll be tripping over them and seriously rethinking your workout routine. Thanks, Jack LaLanne. This is where Larry Phillips Jr. and Emil Matasaranu met in 1989. I have no idea how their friendship blossomed, but it could have gone something like this. Hey! Great triceps. Thanks, I take a lot of roids. Really? Me too. Want to rob some banks together? Sure, sounds like fun. And they probably went home and braided each other's hair. Both men also loved the 1995 movie Heat with Al Pacino, Robert De Niro, and Val Kilmer. Y'all probably didn't know this, but I had a huge crush on Val Kilmer in the 1990s. I think I saw like Batman Forever like six times in theater and rented The Saint a dozen times before I bought it. If you haven't seen Heat, it's about a cop, Pacino, who is after a bank heist gang, De Niro and Kilmer, in LA, of course, and there is an epic shootout scene where the bad guys have automatic rifles and Pacino has a semi-automatic handgun. The movie turned on Phillips and Montessorano so much that they would borrow certain elements from the movie. In June of 1995, the pair began their L.A. robbery career with the cold-blooded murder of a Brinks armored car guard in broad daylight outside a bank in Canoga Park while a dozen witnesses looked on. They never even gave the 51-year-old Herman Cook a chance to hand over the cash, simply opening fire on the man without warning from close range with fully automatic assault rifles and armor-piercing bullets. The robbery gave the FBI the scratch, and agents theorized these guys were not only in it for the money, but for the thrill of it as well. They wanted cash and to shoot some shit up. Oh, and I forgot... You should know these two ass clowns robbed another armored car in Littleton, Colorado in July 1993 and in October of that same year got arrested in Glendale, California for operating a stolen car. In the car, police found two semi-automatic rifles, two handguns, more than 2,800 rounds of rifle ammo and 45 handgun ammo. Radio scanners, smoke bombs, improvised explosive devices, body armor vests, and three different California license plates. I would say, that's a bit sus. They both spent 100 days in jail and lobbied to get most of their seized weapons back. Which they were successful at. Back to 1995. After the murder of Herman Cook, their next job was... Well, it was... It was effed weird. The two decided to hit another Brinks armored car, but to do it in transit. One of these two idiots shot from the passenger window of a van at the armored truck as it was heading in the opposite direction. Yeah, he managed to hit the windshield. But let's remember, this is an armored truck and it ain't gonna stop for nothing. These two blockheads proceeded to turn around and chase the 10,000 pound armored truck that had three armed guards in it for several blocks before giving up. They then returned to a cold car they had stashed and used an incendiary device to torch the van, an idea they stole directly from the movie Heat. Once again, thanks Crime Reads for that information. As much as I would love to make fun of these two, they weren't stupid. For the most part, they had a plan and they prepared well. Though they did make a few idiotic mistakes, like leaving the getaway car running in the parking lot with the door open. But these two were lethal. After the cartoon-like chase, they gave up on armored truck heists and moved on to banks. Specifically, Bank of America. In May 1996, Phillips Amata robbed two Bank of Americas using AK-47 style rifles equipped with 75-round ammunition drums and wearing full-body armor, ski masks, and sunglasses. At each location, they shot off dozens of rounds and threatened to kill children in the banks if the mothers couldn't keep the kids quiet. Overall, they got away with about $1.5 million. When the FBI reviewed the security footage, they were stunned. Not only did these two look massive in their body armor, I mean, remember, they were also bodybuilders, but they spent almost eight minutes in the bank, which is an eternity for a bank robbery. Normally, robbers want to get in and out as fast as possible. It was almost as if they wanted to get into a firefight with police. Unsurprisingly, the authorities labeled these two the High Incident Bandits. Quick side note, there are a few documentaries out there about the North Hollywood shootout, but may I recommend the made-for-TV movie 44 Minutes, the North Hollywood Shootout. Not 100% factual because, well, it's a movie after all, but it will certainly demonstrate the holy shit moment a lot of people felt that day. Do you guys know that song, Everyone's Free to Wear Sunscreen? No? Well, you should really listen to it. There's a lyric in it that I imagine everyone involved in the North Hollywood shootout can relate to. The real troubles in your life are apt to be things that never cross your worried mind, the kind that blindsides you at 4 p.m. on some idle Tuesday. On the morning of Friday, February 28th, 1997, I can imagine there were a lot of people heading to work. Some with a severe case of the TGIFs, if they're anything like me. People wanting to get some errands accomplished before the weekend started. Lots of cops on the first shift, thankful they wouldn't have to put up with the regular bullshit LA Friday nights had to offer. And two dickheads who wanted money, but didn't want to work to get it. Everyone including Phillips and Matasaranu, would be blindsided by the morning's events. That morning, Phillips and Matasaranu rolled out of bed with the intention of knocking over the Bank of America on Laurel Canyon Boulevard in North Hollywood. Phillips donned about 40 pounds of body armor to cover his arms, chest, and legs, while Matasaranu just threw on a bulletproof vest with an extra ballistic plate. They loaded up their white 1987 Chevy Celebrity, what a classic car, with semi-automatic HK91, two illegally converted Norenko Type 56S rifles, a fully automatic Norenko Type 56S1, and a fully automatic Bushmaster XM15 Dissipator. They strapped on semi-automatic pistols because, you know, why not? In the car, they also had thousands of rounds of armor-piercing bullets, loaded ammunition drums, and jars filled with gasoline so they could torch the car later. They arrived at the bank at 9.16 a.m. and decided to pop a couple of barbiturates before they got the party started. For those of you not familiar with drugs, prescription or otherwise, barbiturates are downers, not uppers but they help reduce anxiety, among other things. The moment that they got out of the car, they were doomed to fail. These guys weren't necessarily inconspicuous when they made their way from their car to the bank. These two bulking figures wearing black ski masks, dressed head to toe in black and camo gear, body armor, carrying automatic rifles, made quite a splash. And caught the attention of an LAPD cruiser that just happened to drive by. Talk about your bad luck. The officers in the patrol car immediately radioed at 211 in progress, cop talk for bank robbery, and pulled up to the bank. By this time, Phillips and Matasaranu had already entered the bank, Phillips shouting, This is a fucking holdup, right before Matasaranu opened up fire with his automatic rifle. There were some 30 people in the bank, and needless to say, they were scared spitless. Police would later say, the moment they heard automatic gunfire, they knew, without a doubt, it was the high-incident bandits. As more cops showed up to the Bank of America and set up a perimeter, Phillips and Matazaranu set about forcing the bank manager to fill their bags with money. But, oops, there was less than $400,000 in the vault, and much to the chagrin of the, to the two robbers, the bank manager didn't have access to the ATM. But the robbers did get a little extra bonus tucked into their money bags. Three die packs that would explode and ruin the money. Frustrated, Phillips and Montessoranu unleashed another volley of gunfire and left the bank only to discover it was surrounded by a sea of cops, both uniformed and detective units. This is when all hell broke loose. The two robbers opened up fire on the cops, and the cops returned fire. But while Philip and had automatic weapons, the cops only had revolvers, semi-automatic handguns, and shotguns, which was not enough to penetrate the body armor these two clowns were wearing. Within moments, several cops and civilians were injured. Police took cover behind cars, trees, and and a key kiosk, just whatever they could find that may offer the least bit of cover. No one was safe from the bursts of automatic gunfire. Not even the police and news helicopters that hovered over the scene. The constant police chatter confused police dispatchers who couldn't discern how many officers had been injured and felt helpless when all they could do was tell injured officers that help was on the way. They didn't have ETAs, but help was on the way. The problem was, help was pinned down by the frantic barrage of gunfire too. They needed long guns. They needed SWAT. SWAT was 18 minutes away, but they were coming. In the meantime, officers and civilians hid where they could. The die packs and the money bags exploded, just making Phillips and Matazoranu more angry, and Phillips intentionally targeted injured officers and kept reloading their many automatic rifles. The order was given to cops, not under fire, to run to nearby gun stores and get all the heavy weapons and ammunition they could. Two injured police officers half ran, half crawled to the dentist office across the street for both cover and treatment. The dentist patched one of them up while the other officer guarded the door with a 12-gauge shotgun. The radio chatter didn't let up. We need help now. Finally, SWAT arrived with their AR-15s. And let me tell you how hardcore these guys were. When they received the call for assistance, some of them were about to go for a run. But they dropped everything and jumped into their cars. When they arrived, some were still wearing running shorts and shoes, in addition to their bulletproof vests and tactical helmets. Immediately, SWAT commandeered an armored bank truck. A brink's armored truck, which added a bit of irony to this tale of mayhem. SWAT used the truck to evacuate the wounded, and then set off to take down the gun-wielding maniacs. While all this was going on, Phillips and Matasaranu were shot several times, but not enough to incapacitate them. Barbiturates, am I right? You would think that the two robbers would have jumped in their celebrity and taken off, but No. Montezoranu got into the driver's seat and drove slowly, offering Phillips a bit of cover while he continued to fire on the police. The police couldn't let these two psychos go. They were obligated to follow and try to stop them by any means necessary. Pretty soon, the two got separated. Phillips took off on foot down one residential street, while Montezoranu slowly ambled in the celebrity down another. Phillips hid behind a semi-truck and continued to shoot at police until his rifle stovepiped, which is a spent round that gets stuck in the ejection port. He took out his Beretta, continuing to fire at police until an officer managed to shoot the robber in the hand. At this point, I guess Phillips finally thought it wasn't worth it and put the pistol under his chin and pulled the trigger, taking himself out of commission. In the meantime, News helicopters hovered over the celebrity following Matazoranu. The celebrity pretty much had it, and Matazoranu needed another vehicle to get away. He attempted to carjack a 1963 Jeep Gladiator, but before the driver fled in terror, he activated the electrical kill switch, rendering the car inoperable. Matazaranu wasn't going anywhere quick. SWAT finally caught up with them and the robber and SWAT members exchanged gunfire by shooting at each other from underneath the jeep truck and Celebrity. Finally, finally, Matazoranu was hit in the upper thigh and gave up. Because the scene was still considered hot and police had not cleared the surrounding area, Matazoranu died before an ambulance could arrive 70 minutes later. By the time the shootout came to an end, over 1,700 shots were fired. Nine LAPD officers had had been wounded. Three civilians had been wounded. Twelve police cruisers were destroyed. Eighty-five civilian vehicles had been hit by bullets. And two muscle-head robbers were dead. It was considered the most violent urban battle in U.S. history until the shootout between police and the Tsarnaev brothers in Watertown, Massachusetts in 2013. Even then, it's a toss-up. Immediately after the North Hollywood shootout, support for the LAPD skyrocketed, which is saying a lot since the city was still healing from the Rodney King beating, the L.A. riots, and decades of L.A. police corruption. Thousands of thank you cards were sent to the LAPD and citizens swarmed local police stations with baked goods. Scores of officers and detectives received medals of valor for their heroic deeds that day. And at least for a little while, the citizens of L.A. were thankful for their police force. But that shootout also forever changed police departments across the country. Just months after the shootout, the Department of Defense gave the LAPD 600 M16 rifles, the same kind I carried in the Coast Guard, and AR-15s became standard issue to every patrol vehicle. The cars were also outfitted with bullet-resistant Kevlar plating in the doors. The shootout shocked police departments everywhere, and even small towns found the funds to purchase long guns for their officers and deputies. SWAT teams upgraded from cars and bread vans to armored trucks able to withstand a hail of gunfire. Response tactics changed because bad guys weren't knocking over banks with handguns anymore, and more citizens became obsessed with AR-15s and other military-like rifles that are legal to purchase in some states in the United States. Retired LAPD Captain Greg Meyer, who is considered an expert in police tactics and training, said North Hollywood is still mentioned in police classrooms across the country as a landmark moment for law enforcement. The lesson, Meyer said, is simple. You never know when something like that is going to happen in your city or your town, and you need to be prepared. Today, we've witnessed mass shooting after mass shooting by mostly men with tactical rifles taking out as many people as they can. Unfortunately, a lot of these shootings happen at schools. In order to combat these threats, police need to respond with the same level of force in order to neutralize the threat. Quite simply, you don't bring a knife to a gunfight. My client wasn't 100% wrong when she said the police had too much firepower. They do. But the American public does as well. I too worry about the police becoming too militarized and spending too much time training with long guns rather than concentrating on de escalation tactics. I worry that an overwhelming use of force. Can turn communities against their local police and sheriff's departments, and we've already seen that happening recently. I also worry about scenarios like Uvalde, where police were afraid to use too much force, and as a result, 19 students and two teachers were killed by a maniac with an AR-15-style style rifle and seven 30-round magazines. Unfortunately, we can't fault the police for being armed to the teeth. Because we as American citizens are as well, and some of us don't have the best intentions. Until we can solve the problem of assault rifles falling into the wrong hands, we must resolve ourselves to our police responding to calls with long guns. A lot of you know that I'm a veteran, but I'm also a military civilian. As a historian, I have to document the loss of military members who died of suicide. Each and every time it takes a toll on those I work with and it increases the risk of others taking their own lives as well. This year, there has been an increase of active duty suicides across all branches in the Department of Defense and Homeland Security. It is devastating to get a call from your supervisor to learn that someone you know, someone you worked with, killed themselves. There is little you can do for the families and you are left wondering if you could have done more for your colleague. Suicide is not exclusive to the military, but occurs in our police and first responder community and in our general community as well. Unfortunately, there is still a stigma surrounding mental health. In the military, in the police, and with first responders, some people consider it weak to seek help or believe you will lose your job if you get treatment. For all of us, we may think it is shameful that we are not strong enough to overcome depression. I've been there. I have been in that hole, and it is not easy to climb out of, but it is possible. Not a day goes by that I am not thankful I didn't do something that couldn't be reversed. During my struggles with depression and hopelessness, I learned that seeking help is not shameful, nor is it a sign of weakness. It takes some balls to walk up to someone you trust and admit that you need help. It takes strength to get out of bed in the morning and face another day. If you're listening to this, and are struggling with depression or thoughts of suicide, you're not alone. There are people out there that want to help you, and there is light. You may not be able to see it now, but it's there, and it's waiting for you. Tell someone you trust. Go to your local ER, go to your local police station, go to your church or temple or mosque, You are not admitting defeat. You are conquering defeat. If you or someone you know is considering suicide, you can call the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline at 988. In the UK, you can call 0800-689-5652. In Australia, call 131114. You are never alone in your fight. Friends, I am so glad you joined me for this episode, as short as it was. And I would love to hear from you. Email me your thoughts, your Crime or dating nightmare stories. We had fun with that one last time. Or email me your ideas for future episodes. You can reach me at thehistorybehindthecrime at gmail.com and you can also message me or follow me on Instagram at thehistorybehindthecrime. Next time, I will be back with another bank robbery story. But this one has a twist. Until then do me a favor. Take care of yourselves and take care of each other. Bye.